0: Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, band. Way to go. Thank you for leading us. Um, Joseph Patton, our uh, staff worship director, is uh, out. Um, They just had their third baby boy, so he's going to be out for the next six months. Um, Kidding. Uh, But this is what's amazing. I mean, the gifted musicians we have, but Josh Pantana, our former worship director, is now one of our volunteers, and this is—it's uh, a gift—to uh, serve with him again. Uh, we miss you, bro. Um, it's the only time he ever comes to church when he's playing. He just wants—I'm kidding, I'm kidding—but um, it's a joy. Um, we are uh, almost done with a short little sermon series that we have been calling um, the questions that God asks. It's a six-week sermon series. This is week five of it. We will wrap it up next week. There are these. Very personal, very particular, very specific interactions in the Old Testament where uh, the God of the universe, Yahweh, shows up to individuals and he asks these individuals very particular questions that are very pertinent to what's going on in their life and in their circumstances. So we're studying these stories, we're studying these interactions to, to lean into the God that asks questions and why would God ask questions when he already knows everything and what goes on in the soul of those who receive these questions and what if God is asking us the same questions? So, this week we are in the book of Isaiah, um, the first of the major prophets uh, in the Old Testament. If you want to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, um, we'll be reading the first uh, nine and a half verses. If not, it'll be on your screen. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, come to your word um, your mystical and magical and powerful word that um, we really do in a moment of sanity and with as clearly as we can see, we, we know we need your word. Uh, we know that we um, are underneath your word. We know that we need your word to lead us, to guide us, to even rebuke us, uh, to um, correct us. But most of all, Jesus, this, this precious word you've given to us the only thing uh, that it can do that nothing else can do is to show us the real Jesus. And so as we come before your word now and we, and we ask it to cut us to bone and marrow, we ask this double-edged sword to do its work, we ask precious and tender Lord, would you cause this word by the power of your spirit to do what only it can do and would you give us a fresh encounter, a fresh experience, a fresh reminder of who our Jesus is. May we not leave this place without having met with Jesus face to face, much like Isaiah did here. We pray now for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning that you forgive him his sins for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus name. Amen. So this is a uh, seminal biblical passage and what I mean by that is, is not that it is more important than other biblical passages. Um, we believe that all of scripture is holy and uh, inspired and sacred, but what, what I mean by that is that is that what is contained in these nine and a half verses is so rich and so weighty uh, and so dense that it has been said before the entire Bible could be preached from these nine verses. If you want to talk about any theme from scripture, any part of scripture, you could get to that part of scripture from these nine verses, that all of it is here. So no pressure for the preacher and the seminarian and the theologian to go, <laughs> okay, we have 30 minutes. Let's be honest. When Ellie's preaching, we got about 45 minutes. We, got, we have a limited amount of time, okay? If you're new, I'm sorry. But we have we have a limited amount of time to look at what What some theologians say is the most dense part of the entire Bible. Uh, And so all of my seminary professors, all of my preaching professors would say, hey, if you're going to come preach this seminal passage, don't screw it up, okay? Because there's a lot here. There's a lot to be said. Just don't don't go off the rails too much. So we're going to look at what it says to us. What's hard about it, what's difficult about it is that this, this incredibly dense scene with all of this imagery that's going on is not easily deciphered. It's not easily like translated. It's going, okay, what, there's this heavenly vision? What is Isaiah seeing? But what we just saw was literally a window into the heavenly throne room. This is us, this is Isaiah getting to peel back the curtain into heaven. The description intentionally leaves more unsaid than said, and so we come to this passage, and we maybe know that it is saying a lot, but we also maybe have a whole lot of questions that's intentional. It's because to poke our head into heaven, to poke our eyes behind the curtain of the throne room of heaven is mysterious, and it's divine, and we would be We would be arrogant to think that if we could just peek our head into heaven that it would all make sense and we could fully understand it with our finite minds, that it wouldn't leave stuff unsaid and stuff unexplained and it wouldn't leave stuff mysteriously wanting for us. Isaiah even is the one who sees the vision and he has this vision that is so otherworldly it's difficult for him as he pens these words to find adequate words to describe the description of what he saw. Listen, listen to his attempt to put in human terms the, dif- the, the divine infinite vision that he just saw with his finite, limited eyes. Listen to what he says. The opening description. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, that's, that's the end of his royal robe, filled the temple, okay? Above him stood the seraphim. You've never heard of a seraphim, okay? That word literally just means burning thing. Okay, so he sees these fiery creatures. And listen to the description of them. Each had six wings. You Never seen anything like that. And listen to what they're doing. With two, they covered their face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So we should be going, okay, this, this is some like Marvel movie that meets sci-fi, uh, divine, heavenly image. Like what did we just witness The picture that Isaiah paints for us, he's trying to find the words. It strikes awe, it strikes terror into the heart of the reader. And the reader and the listener gets the idea that maybe Isaiah just got a little bit too close to the majestic. That's that's what we're meant to feel. Maybe he's seen something that's beyond what we know to be familiar in our own experience. Maybe he's seen something from a different sphere, from a different dimension that doesn't make any sense to us. Maybe there's more than meets the eye than what we normally see in our own world. And so Isaiah is having a hard time finding a description of the inner sanctum of the temple where God dwells. This is the throne room. This vision unveils the windows of heaven. And here's what he sees. Here is what we are clearly told. He sees the king sitting on a throne, high above the rest, being worshiped by angelic seraphims and all of the mystery and majesty with this scene that goes with it. So with all of the unknown, with all of the questions, like what are these creatures, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and what is it, what's going on? Here's what is central. Here's what Isaiah sets apart in a poetic way, if you read it in your Bibles and you saw it. Here's what he heard. Here's the song he heard singing. He's trying to describe the scene, but he goes, I know what I heard, and that, that is what Isaiah is left with. I know the song they were singing, and here's what we're told in verse three. And one called to another, that is, the seraphim are singing back and forth, echoing in the chamber, yelling out, singing out, crying out this phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in scripture, um, especially in the Old Testament, there are uh, ways that a writer could emphasize something. They, they, you know, they're writing um, on, on these ancient scrolls and they're writing and it's tough for them to draw the uh, eye of the reader or the attention of the reader into something that they really want to emphasize and something that they really want the reader to walk away with to know this is a really important thing. You know, bold and highlighter and italics and underline, and we've got, you know, emojis now that we can, you know, try to add some emphasis to different things. Here's how Old Testament writers, the main way at the grammar level, at the word level, that they would draw attention to something that they really wanted you to know. They would repeat it. Repetition equals emphasis in the Old Testament. And in fact, if you really wanted, if you really wanted to emphasize something, you would repeat it twice. So, King David later on well, it's actually before this, King David in the book of 2 Samuel when his son Absalom is chasing him and his son dies. Absalom, it's a, it's, a, it's a broken father-son story and his son's trying to take the throne and then David hears that Absalom has died in the battle. David, to emphasize his grief so that everyone that was listening to David in the, temp- or in the, in the palace that day as he's crying out for his son and so that the reader would know just how sad David was, he cries out, Absalom, Absalom, He says his name twice and the reader is meant to go, oh gosh, he just said his name twice. That double repetition means that David was really, really grieving for his son. But here, listen to this, double repetition means, oh man, this is a big deal. But here the angels of the Lord are crying out, singing out, declaring out, yelling out in the most Hebraic superlative way possible. They say this, holy, holy, holy. Some of that gets lost on us, especially if you're raised in the church and you've heard, holy, 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 yeah, 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 holy, holy, holy. But like, that sounds so boring. They're just repeating the same word. It sounds like a bad worship song. Like they're just you know, saying the same word over and over again. But here, that's not what's happening. The angels are obsessing over and adoring the God that they are in the throne room with for his singularly superlative attribute. And here's what I mean by this. The holiness of God is the only attribute in Scripture that is repeated in the emphatic triple repetition. It's the only attribute of God that any creature, any being, or any writer says is worth a superlative mention of the triple repetition. The angels aren't uh, flying around, singing around, singing love, 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 although God is love. The angels aren't singing around and flying around saying mercy, mercy, mercy. It doesn't even say that they're flying around singing out power, power, power. Even though the Lord is all of those things and has all of those attributes, and if you were to say God is love or God is merciful or God is powerful, yes, that's true. But the Lord above everything else is holy. The angels could not emphasize it anymore. It is the most emphasized attribute of God in all of Scripture. God is not just holy. God's not just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. So, what does it mean? This attribute that the nonstop worshipers are adoring about their God, what does it mean? The word holy literally means, and we, we're going to have to, if you were raised in the church, we have to unlearn a bunch of things because you think you hear that word holy and you think um, you know what that means or you think I have an idea of that. Here's what the word literally means. It means separate, singled out. It literally is like a word that means like cut, like, like a piece of fabric that will be cut and like removed for this one special piece. And here's what it's saying. God's supreme, holy, holy holiness means that the God of the Bible is supremely different, supremely separate, supremely singled out. He is utterly other when compared to anything else. God's absolute holiness reveals how separate he is, how different he is, how totally other he is, especially in comparison to anything in the created world. Another way to say this very bluntly is you've never met or seen anything like him. God is not like the other gods. Maybe better news, God is not like you. It's trying to say to you, you don't know someone like this. He doesn't act like you act. He doesn't think like you think. He doesn't treat people like you treat people. He is utterly, he's not just holy from you. He's not just separate from you. He's not just different than you. He's holy, holy, holy different than you. If you grew up in church, it's easy to think, it's easy to hear the word, oh, God is holy. And that term is so, it it falls at least semantically for many of us into this really boring category. Like, holiness is this description of this static thing. Like, God is this unique statue that we just stick up on the shelf and we go, man, that looks different than all the other statues. He's just kind of up there and different and separate and holy and pure and clean. And I guess, I guess I'm guess i supposed to join the angel song and go, yeah, holy, holy, holy. That's, that's kind of lame, though, to me, is how we think about it. But holiness is not static Holiness is dynamic, and here's what I mean by that. The angels are not saying to God, holy, 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 because they're just watching this immovable thing that they're worshiping. They're worshiping God for his dynamic, his interactive, his actions, and the actions of his will are so different. His his motions, his movement, his things that he do in the world are so different, are so other, are so transcendent, are so not like everything else in the world, that he is holy. The declaration of his holiness is the declaration that his actions in the world are utterly different. The way he moves, the things he does, the, kinds of pers- the kind of person that he is, is utterly different than anything else. They declare him to be holy because they've seen who he is and what he does. And they're going, no one in the world is like this God. Not just because he's up there and he's pure white and you can't look at him. No, no, no. The angels are watching his actions in the world and what he's done and who he is and how he interacts with the created world. And they're going, there's nobody like you. We've seen what you do. We've seen how you act. We've seen how you treat your people. We've seen what your hands have done. That's what we're just saying. They can't get over what he does, and that's why they declare him to be holy, holy, holy. The way the Psalms teach us to sing about God's holiness is by asking this rhetorical question, who is like our God? We don't have a God that deals with people this way. We don't have a supreme being in any other religion that treats people this way. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So that's true about him. If he really is dynamically and utterly different than the created order, what makes him holy? What are the things that he has done or does that these angels see about him and that we know about him? What does this passage show us that teaches us about just how utterly different he is, that he's a different kind of God, that you've never met anything or anyone like him? Well, the first thing that God's holiness... um, is, is shown to us to do in this passage is that God's holiness undoes us. How do we see that? This is really important. I want us to look back at Isaiah's guttural, unprompted, uninstructed response after he beholds the Lord and his holiness in his throne room. Okay, this is really important. That when we see Isaiah's response, please note in your mind, no one is telling him what to do. Okay, he's not walking back to the VIP section behind the show in the green room and having all the little people go, all right, now when you meet him, you have to respond this way. When you go to him, make sure you don't say these things. Make sure you say these things. No one is coaching Isaiah. No one is telling him how to respond. And look at what he does. Verse five, he's seen the Lord in his holiness. And his unprompted response is this. Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. First thing Isaiah says is, woe is me. Woe, it's not woke, woe is me, is a biblical word for a divine curse, a divine punishment. It's saying, I am going to be decimated, and I deserve to be decimated. It's a divine smiting towards someone who is so evil they deserve divine wrath. And Isaiah is saying about himself, I deserve to be wiped out. In the presence of this God, I deserve to be wiped out. And again, no one told him to say that. No one said, hey, that God up there, he's got a really fragile ego. He really wants you to be afraid of him. And when you see him, make sure you just give the lip service to say, hey, I deserve your punishment. That didn't happen. In the previous chapter, this is is amazing. In the previous chapter, Isaiah chapter five, Isaiah, for five chapters, has been the prophet of the Lord. You know what the prophet did? They were God's mouthpiece to God's people. They were God's megaphone to God's people. In the previous chapter, God has given Isaiah a message to the people of Israel. And five, no, six times in Isaiah chapter five, six times in the previous chapter, Isaiah gives woes to to the people of Israel. Gives covenant divine curses to the people of God for their idolatry, for their sin, for their rebellion, for all, that is, for all their injustice. He's saying, woe to you people for this and woe to you people for that and woe to you people for worshiping other gods and woe to you people for all the sin that you've committed and the rebellion against your God. And he's right in doing that. But then the seventh woe of Isaiah, The seventh time in this section that Isaiah pronounces a woe, pronounces a judgment, pronounces a covenant curse onto somebody, he's not talking to them anymore. He says, woe is me. Woe to myself because I have encountered the holy. Not one time in the rest of the book does Isaiah give a woe to the people. He was full of them in chapter six, or chapter five. He had six of them. The seventh one, the completed one, the perfect one, it's all about him. I've seen the holy now. I'm done giving woes to the people. We'll we'll be in this together. Let's say there's such a resistance to this. I know. I I know, especially in our cultural time and our cultural way, that you go, no, Isaiah, you're not a bad guy. Why? Why? Woe is you? No, dude, you're good. You, you, don't need, you don't need to be afraid of God. If you're afraid of God, you've got the wrong picture of God and that's, that's Freudian of you that you, you just imagine that about yourself. And no, we, let's just rip Isaiah 6 out. Let's just, why, don't, why, don't, why do we have to talk about Isaiah calling down covenant curses on himself when he sees the holiness of God? But here's what I would say to you. You can rip Isaiah 6 out of your Bible. Go for it. You can't get through the rest of scripture without seeing this same interaction all over the place. You're going to have to rip, I know it's angering, isn't it? I know, throw that phone. But if you, if you, if you want to get close to the God of the Bible, this is what happens. It happens everywhere in Scripture. The moment God's glory is revealed to people, people become instantly aware of their unworthiness, and no one tells them to do it. This is not unique to Isaiah. It happens to Adam and Eve in the garden, happens to Job when, he's, when the Lord reveals himself to Job at the end of Job, happens to Moses at the burning bush, happens to Peter in a boat, happens to Paul on the road to Damascus. It happens start to finish. The Lord shows you a glimpse of his glory and everybody that encounters that in this, in this sense is undone. And again, they're not studying all the interactions that happened before them and going, oh, I think this is how I'm supposed to react when I see someone like this. This is what happens to the natural man when they encounter the supernatural God. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite dead guys, he says this, Truly, it is but a thin veil that hides the sinfulness of our hearts from our own eyes, but the breath of God sweeps it away. And all God has to do is show you a glimpse of his glory, and this is what, start to finish in scripture, this is how people respond when they encounter the holy. And you may be rolling your eyes at that, but this is true of every major world religion. Christianity did not invent this. You get close to the supreme power, you get close to the transcendent God, his holiness, his otherness, it makes you instantly aware of your inadequacy. And you, and, and you might be going, well, I don't, I don't really understand that. Like, I, maybe I've never, you know, encountered God like this, but I don't know that I would feel inadequate when I'm with him. And here's what I would say. Fine, remove some divine idea of this. You and I do this on a human level. When we are forced to compare ourselves to someone better than us, we feel threatened by them. Like, how did you feel about the smartest kid in your algebra class in high school? You hated him if you were an overachiever in algebra, okay? How do you feel about the coworker that you work with that's more gifted than you at the thing you want to be good at? How do you feel when it's bathing suit season? How do you feel about other families that have kids that are somehow better than your kids? How do you feel about those parents? How do you feel about those people? The instant comparison of superlativeness instantly reveals our inadequacy. We, are thr- we hate them. I don't want to be around you. I don't want to look at you. I don't like being near you because your superlativeness makes me feel inadequate. Okay, so if just on a little human level, let me ask you this. How do you think you'd fare with the holy, holy, holy one? How do you think you'd feel in his presence? who is supremely beautiful, supremely intelligent, supremely righteous? How do you think you'd feel about yourself when you just got a glimpse of who he is? So then Isaiah says, I'm lost. I'm lost. That word lost here, that he says in this English translation, Other English translations translate it this way I am ruined or I am destroyed. He says, Woe is me, I am lost. Woe is me, I am destroyed. Woe is me, I am ruined. Woe is me, I am undone. It's a a war term in the ancient world. It literally describes being decimated by an opposing force. And at the existential level, here's what Isaiah is saying. I am being undone and decimated. I am being disintegrated in my sense of self. I am coming apart at the seams. Isaiah says that beholding the holiness of God undoes him disintegrates him and decimates his sense of self. He's saying the things that have held my life together, the things that I've built my life on, my accomplishments, my sense of confidence, my, my drivenness, my giftedness, the things that I wanna build my life on are now fraying and coming apart. I am losing my sense of self emotionally, existentially, theologically. The God I thought I knew is not the God that I thought I knew because now when I'm standing in front of this God, I don't feel so good about myself. And I wanted a God that would just boost my self-esteem. I wanted a God that would just make me feel good about myself. But now if I've built my whole life on that, and now I have to stand in front of that God, and I feel this way, maybe I don't know anything. Maybe I don't know anything about the God that I thought that I knew. And here's how we, you may say, oh, you're reading too much into the text. That's not what Isaiah's feeling. Yes, it is. Here's how we know that. Look at the text. Look at what he says. Look at the place in his life where he knows he is coming apart. Look at the place, the area in his life where he knows for sure he is unclean. You may have missed it on the first read-through. Listen to what he says. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Okay, lips, as in the place where I speak from. And Isaiah believes that in that place he is unclean. In this place he is defiled. In this place he is undone. You know why that's a big deal? This is a prophet of God. Do you know what his professional job was? Speaking. He's been speaking for five chapters on words that the Lord has given him. But now when he encounters the holy, what does he see? His lips are unclean. The very place that he does his job from. The very place that he gets his confidence from. The very place he's been gifted in to do, to accomplish the work. The place he was gifted by God and called by God to use for God, when he gets in the presence of a holy God, he realizes at the very same time he is disqualified and unfit for that position. Can you imagine feeling undone, ruined, decimated, disintegrated in the very place where you have built your identity? Can you imagine feeling unqualified for the thing that you are currently doing? Ever have imposter syndrome? Can you imagine feeling ashamed for the way that you've been gifted, especially as your gifts pertain to the tasks you have been called to do? Ever had the terrifying moment of feeling like everything you've ever built your life on is a total sham? Like, let's make this a little personal. How do you feel as a mother? Feel qualified to be a mom? How do you feel as a husband? How do you feel about yourself as a boss of people? How do you feel as a physician? How do you feel as a teacher of children? Do you feel fit and qualified to do that? Or do you feel sometimes like there's something you've done or a part of who you are or a part of the way that you're wired, that disqualifies you from doing those things? Do you feel as though the gifts you've been given, the way that you've been wired, your Enneagram number, whatever, that do you feel like how you are acting and interacting in what you've been called to do, you know the dark side of how you've been wired, you know what you've done, you know the shameful side of how you're wired, And so even if everyone else believes that you're doing great at what you do, you know deep down that if they knew what you knew, they would say to you too, woe is you. You don't deserve to be doing this. You are unfit and unqualified for that role. So we're gonna leave Isaiah there for a minute, in the dirt, okay? We're gonna skip ahead to the end of this passage. Isaiah is disintegrated and full of shame. But now let's skip ahead. Can you? I hope, I hope uh, you're feeling what he was feeling just a little bit. And then the second thing we see God's holiness doing, the second thing we see God's holiness revealed as holy to do in this passage comes from his question in verse 8 and 9. We skip ahead to the end of the passage, Darren. Says Verse 8 and 9, he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he, that's the Lord, said, Go and say to this people. Okay, Isaiah's in the dirt. We've skipped ahead. And here's what we're going to study real quick. Uh, This holy God has a mission. This holy God has an agenda. What is it? And here's, here's what it is. The Holy God longs to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. The Holy God is so good and so beautiful, he wants to share his glory with the world. He wants to relay his healing power to the ends of the earth, and so he's asking a question. He's enlisting volunteers, which by the way is comical when you realize Isaiah is the only one there. The Lord's going, who will I send? It's like, well, there's one person in the class, like, Who's gonna go for us, okay? The Lord's going, who's gonna join us on this mission of sharing my glory, sharing my beauty with the world? What's interesting, if you go back to the angel's song in verse three, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, then they say, after that first line, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and they say, the whole earth is full of his glory, What's interesting, at the Hebrew original language level of the Old Testament, uh, there's no verb in that second line. All that it says in Hebrew is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and then it says, the whole earth, full of his glory. And you may go, okay, well, that's not a big deal. Like, But here's what that means for the translators of English versions. Translators have to supply a verb there. So it matters what tense should the verb be in, right? Is it... Uh, The whole earth was full of his glory, but it's not anymore. The whole earth is currently full of his glory. There's nothing left to do. Or the whole earth will be full of his glory one day. And it's hard, okay, so we're dealing with heavenly throne room, like these angelic beings are not constrained by space or time. So whatever we say from our our perspective, what the verb should be from our perspective is not their perspective. I know we're getting a little, you know, meta here, but just go with me for a second, okay? It's interesting that these angelic beings are declaring something and they didn't need a verb. That's what's interesting. We need a verb for to go, okay, what's the time-space continuum on the whole earth being full of his glory? Is it now or is it one day? Well, the angels can sing about it from any time perspective because they're outside of time or space. How do we sing about it? Based on the rest of scripture, it would probably be best for us to understand what they're saying, for us to understand them singing it this way, The whole earth one day, from our perspective, will be full of his glory. From our perspective, the angels are future casting. They're praising God for what he will do when his kingdom is fully established on the earth and when he fully dwells with his people here. The day when there will be no more death, there will be no more sin, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more divorce, there will be no more addiction, there will be no more racism, there will be no more greed, there will be no more human trafficking, there will be no more sadness or pain or any such thing. That day, then, the whole earth will be full of his glory. And the angels are already praising him for it. They're singing about it like it's already happened because they know it will happen. They know from their perspective it has already happened. They know how the story ends and they're already singing about it and Isaiah's just peeking into the curtain going, wait, wait, they're already praising the Lord for his earth, the whole earth being full of his glory and Isaiah's looking at the world going, doesn't feel like it's full of his glory. Doesn't feel like it's full of his glory, like it's tapped out and it's maxed out. How are they singing about an earth being full of his glory when I'm a man of unclean lips? And when there's injustice everywhere and there's all this sadness, how can they sing about it? It's because they know what will happen. That's what the angels are singing about. This glorious mission of the future coming of God's kingdom. And so here's what's interesting. The angels know that that's going to happen, but we should pause for a second and go, but wait, the passage ends with the Lord sending Isaiah out into the world to do this glory-spreading, glory-sharing work. This is a holy God who sins. Do you know how the Lord intends on bringing his glory and his kingdom to heal this world? Do you know how he has mapped out the filling of the earth with, it, with his glory? Do you know how he has joyfully planned on making the angel's song come true? You. And me. Us. Us. The people of God have been tasked with answering this question to answer the question for an end that we know will be sure and certain. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And you should feel the joy and the delight of a father of a king asking you that question when no one else is in the room, like Isaiah. Like, hey, Isaiah, I know how this story is going to end. The earth is going to be full of my glory one day. Whom shall I send? Anybody want to go for me on this guaranteed victory? Anybody want to go with me? Go for us on sharing this glory? And Isaiah's like the last kid being picked for the dodgeball team. Like, hey, like, hey, I, I, sorry if that was traumatic for some of you. But here, he's going, he's going, hey, no, no, no. Like, Isaiah, I want you to go. I want you to go. I'm asking you to join me on this mission of bringing life to the world the people of God have been given the light of the Lord and it's been handed to us to shine into the darkness. We've been given living, living water. It's been put under our control to take to a dry and weary land. The joy of the Lord has been given to you to share with those who are despairing and the compassion of the Lord has been given to you to share with those that are weeping and the justice of the Lord has been given to you to share with those that are oppressed and on and on and on you are plan A for making the angel song come true. But if you're following along with the story so far, you should be asking, maybe I haven't explained it well enough if you're not asking it, but you may be asking a very logical question. How can a man with unclean lips, with his face in the dirt, be the one to go and speak and share the glory of the Lord with the world? How can a man who has been undone by his own inadequacy be the very same person to go and speak and join the Lord in the mission to heal the world? This is where we see the third thing that the holy God does. Look with me again at this middle scene of the, of the, of the interaction, verse 5 through 7 your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for okay this holy god that undoes us and this holy god that sends us is also the holy god that atones for us with all this imagery in the scene like the angel taking the burning coal and what was the what was why was it burning and what was the altar and what is the seraphim this burning thing that's flying at me all of the imagery of this majestic scene, we could try to pick apart some of the, like, what, what, is that, what does all the imagery mean? But here's the main point of what just happened to Isaiah. He was atoned for, and he did nothing to accomplish it. God made the atonement happen. Isaiah made no sacrifices. Isaiah made no promises. Isaiah wasn't sticking his head in the dirt going, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, but if you'll let me go be a missionary, will you just atone for me? He doesn't make any resolutions. He understands he has no power to save himself. His head is in the dirt. He's calling down covenant and divine curses on himself. And yet, here's what the passage is saying. The holiness of God is a holiness that atones for people like Isaiah. God atoned for his ruined servant because he is holy. Remember what holy means? Different, set apart, other, transcendent, not like anybody else. His holiness is what undoes us, yes. His holiness is is what sends us, yes. But his holiness is primarily expressed in this passage in the fact that he atones for us too. The fact that he atones for Isaiah here without asking Isaiah to lift a finger, to make a sacrifice, to make a promise, to do better, without the fact that he atones for Isaiah and doesn't require Isaiah to do anything to be atoned for is what makes him holy. It's his holiness that causes him to atone for the very people who are at the same time too impure to be in his presence. You've never met a God like this. In the words of Karl Barth, this is the God who both uncovers and covers our shame. Do you see his holiness doing both things? His holiness undresses Isaiah and says, your life is a sham. You've been giving woes to everybody else and you're the unclean one. That's what God's holiness does to him. And before Isaiah can even take another breath, God's holiness comes and atones for him in that very place Th- this is, ple- please please do not miss this, please get this. God's atonement for Isaiah is in the very specific place where Isaiah knew that he was ruined. listen to this again I, 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 because the Bible says it better than me, shocking, I know, but listen to what listen to what Isaiah says listen. Go, to, go there in your imagination. See Isaiah in the dirt, weeping and wailing, calling down uninstructed curses on himself for what he, know he, he knows he deserved. And then look at what the angel does to him. Verse six. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Where did Isaiah feel undone? Where did Isaiah feel the most decimated? Where did he know he was ruined? Where did he know he was unqualified? Where was his greatest shame causing him to turn and put his face in the ground? His lips. And then where did the angel touch him with the coal? Where did the angel touch the burning coal so that Isaiah could not leave that throne room without being sure that his deepest shame had been removed and his deepest sin was atoned for? His lips. This is unspeakably tender and precious from the Holy God. He touches Isaiah with his atonement in the very place where Isaiah knew his deepest guilt and shame. Can you imagine this for yourself? I know this is painful. I I know this, this is scary to do, but here's what I want you to do. If you need to close your eyes, do it. I want you to go to the place in your story. I want you to go to the parts of your story and in your conscience, where you feel the most ashamed, where you feel the most disqualified in your conscience and the most guilty, the place that you don't want anybody to know about, the place that you are busy trying to hide, the place that you are exhausted from trying to cover up, quite frankly, the place that you are spending all of your energy trying to atone yourself for. Go there. I know it's not fun. Go there. Imagine it. Imagine, just like Isaiah, that you are undone in that place. And then I want you to imagine Jesus touching that very part of your story, going to that very place and saying this to you. Behold, this has touched your sexual brokenness. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Behold, this has touched your addiction Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Behold, this has touched your rage. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Behold, this has touched your shameful past. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's done. It's removed. It's forgiven. It's been paid for. And you didn't lift a finger. holy, 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 who is like our God? In John chapter 12 in the New Testament, Jesus is teaching to the crowds, many of whom were Jewish people, and they would have known this story of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter six. And he says something just briefly about Isaiah, but it, it, puts a, it adds a lot of meaning and color to the scene that we're studying he says that when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, this is Jesus talking. He says, when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, Isaiah saw me. Here's what Jesus just told you. He gave you a spoiler alert that would have helped Isaiah maybe massively at the time, but what Isaiah saw, when he saw the king sitting on the throne and the train of his robe filling the temple and the atonement happening, he saw Jesus. Isaiah saw the king who would one day come and would one day atone, not just for Isaiah, but atone For all of God's people, Isaiah saw a holy king who was also full of mercy. And so here's what happens Isaiah goes, and I mean this instantly, from unqualified for the mission to qualified for the mission. And he did nothing to earn it. In the very lips that just a moment before were formerly cursed and unclean, they have now been atoned for. And now he is called to go and speak for the Lord. That's why verse 9 is a very important part of this passage. Because he says, hey Isaiah, go and speak this to the people. Like I want you to use that thing. I want you to use that part of your story where you felt the most shame that I've now paid for. I want you, you to use that place Use that part of your story that I've redeemed in you, that I've paid for in you, that I've covered in you. Use that, use that that mouth, use those lips to go and tell the world about my glory. And that's how we're sent too. Why do you think Isaiah was so excited? He's like a little kid on Christmas when he's going, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And he goes, me, pick me, (laughs) like I wanna go tell people about what you just did, where you just touched my shame. I want to go tell people about the glory that I just experienced. And that's the glory we take to the ends of the earth. Come and listen to what my Jesus has done for me. Come and listen to the mercy I've been shown in the place of my deepest shame. Come and join me in the mission of telling the world about this holy God and this holy king. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we... We are a people of unclean lips and it doesn't stop there. Many of us don't have to reach very far into our past to know a place where we feel decimated and undone, to know the sins that haunt us and the accusations that taunt us from things we've done. And so Jesus, in your mercy, Jesus, in your tenderness, would you come and touch a hot coal to the places in our story where we know we are unqualified for the mission? Would we rise up with Isaiah in great gratitude, awe, and joy at the God who sends formerly disqualified people into the world to share the glory of the Holy King? Jesus, you are holy. We don't even have a clue of how true that is. This morning, as we close in worship, would you, um, wherever we particularly need it, would you whisper to us in the place where we need to see just how unlike the other gods you are. Holy, holy, holy as Lord of hosts. Thank you, Jesus, for your atonement for us. We ask all this in your name. Amen.